Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Hoop Du Jour with moi. Peter Vesey, presented by the National Basketball Retired Players Association. Frank, sir, again, week three. Mm -hmm. What do you think? What do you think we should do? What do I think we should do? Yeah. Well, let's see. It's you, it's me, and it's Jerry West in the green room. You figure out what we should do. Yeah, I think we talk to each other enough during the days that Mm -hmm. we don't have to talk to each other too much. Let's just go right to Jerry. I believe that's probably the correct course of action. (laughs) Jerry, welcome. Great great to see you again. (laughs) Man, great. It's an honor, as usual. Um, We go back a long way. We're not going to talk about that. I did that with Oscar. But as long as I mentioned Oscar's name, uh, you know, last week we had him on, and uh, he was saying that, uh, well, you had told me over the years how much you – couldn't believe that he had a, such a smooth transition from college to pros, and it took you, you said, a half a season. Tell, tell me a little bit about that, why it took you so long, and, and what do you think of Oscar Robertson's game? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, first of all, um, he, he, I absolutely loved him, uh, both as a competitor and as a teammate. Uh, during our Olympic Games together. And um, the thing that I thought was really unique about him, Pete, as I mentioned uh, to you many times before, is how advanced he really was. And um, I attribute it to probably the fact that he played against some really good competition uh, where he grew up in Indianapolis. And being exposed to those kind of players, players who had a different kind of skill level than some uh, kid from West Virginia – uh, who, who worked in the coal mines and you go out and play compete against uh, it wasn't the same level it was more uh, it was more what to say highly achieved players uh, who had competed in college and I didn't see that kind of competition at all um, he had more players to learn from but again you have to look at him <clears throat> for what he was he had great skill he had terrific size for a backcourt player at that point in time, he was like six five, and I was six four and a half. And <clears throat> I think his ability to play the game on both ends of the court, and particularly his leadership skills, getting the ball to people in the right time, being a play ahead all the time on, on the offensive end, um, he just had a mind that was much further progressed than than myself. Uh, it wasn't close, and. Uh, <clears throat> It really showed up to me uh, during the Olympic Games uh, when we had an opportunity to play together uh, <clears throat> just to see how how he would get into things uh, that Pete Newell, who the late Pete Newell, who was our coach. Uh, it was pretty fascinating, really, to watch him. And, <clears throat> you know, being a, someone who I've always felt I've been kind of a sponge in the sense I want to soak up as much information as I can, uh, regardless of what it might be in life. <clears throat> but at that time, <clears throat> excuse me, at that point in time, 
I was a player trying to look to get better. And how do you get better? You watch people that you know that play the game in a unique way. And uh, that's what helped me so much, playing against him. And I knew inside of myself that there was something there that had not been touched before. And instead of just going out playing the game, reacting to the speed of the game, uh, there's so much more to that. And the players achieve at the highest level. They think the game differently than players who are all, even all-star players. Uh, there's a unique group of players that have that skill. Uh, you always know what somebody's going to do. Uh, but the point is, in this game, sometimes it might not be good enough if you know what somebody's going to do because they might catch you just a little bit off balance uh, to be able to say defensively if you're playing someone. They can, they can beat you regardless of what you do defensively. Right. I got to stop you, though, Jerry. How how did you do against him once things evened out? You did guard each other, right? Many times, yeah. right? How did, yeah. how did you do? Well, you know, with me, Pete, I've always felt that as an offensive player, uh, you have to look at what they do best. And I never felt like he was just going to blow by me, okay? But he could go get to where he wanted, big, strong body, uh, knew how to use his body, which is a gift in itself and also a strength of players. And as you get older and more experienced, you learn how to do that. But with me, I, I always try to keep, play one guy, keep, keep him going one way, not to be able to beat you both ways. Uh, I just think that players are too good when you allow them to beat you both ways. And today it's gotten even worse uh, because the ability of players to handle the ball, but more importantly, you know, the, the Euro step, the uh, the walking steps that are <laughs> that, that are that is it, is it, a dog. To be honest with you, there's a bigger uh, exchange rate. Than all of those you, you, all know, you, you know what? If, if I can interrupt for a second, I watched the game one day last week. There was so many steps taken. I was waiting for a guy to put in for mileage. <laughs> it really, it really, it really was just. Well, if you look how all sports, think how all sports have changed, okay? Look at baseball. One time, a you know, baseball pitcher would, like, the badge of honor was to pitch nine innings, throw 120 pitches. Now they th throw about 80 pitches or 85, and that's it. So they people are used to uh, strikeouts and home runs today, and that's the way the game. A specialist. It's a game of specialists. Yeah. And uh, football, uh, no one can touch the quarterback anymore. Uh, yeah. You can't touch a wide receiver. Um, well, you can't and, touch the ball handlers either. Well, well, you can't. And <laughs> no, so no. the rules, what do people go to boxing matches for? They don't go for a decision. They won't see somebody get knocked out. Why do they go to a baseball game? Again, strikeouts and home runs. I love to see guys hit home runs. Um, even golf today, they're, the, the, the guy that everyone's talking about, who just they want to see how far Bryson DeChambeau can hit the ball. Uh, so every game has changed, and within that, obviously, boundaries have to be changed. And uh, people pay for excitement, and that's why we see these things allowed. I, I don't know the difference between a Euro step and a jump stop is walking. I don't get that. Why is jump stop a walking? If you just go jump and you don't move your feet, you're, you're planted, okay? But the other one is, yeah. I mean – I see guys carrying the ball down the floor like this, and you say to yourself, you know, how far they have come. And it's just an evolution, I think, in all sports. There's so much uh, information. Uh, everyone has all this information, knowledge. Uh, 
I think on our our coaching staffs, uh, we might between coaches and uh, and people or workout coaches, we probably have fourteen people. And to think that one time you had maybe one coach and then one assistant coach, and today you just have all this knowledge there that these kids are coming in at such an early age beat that they need help, regardless of how skilled they are. They need help to to see the game in a different way. And that's why you see you know, them have so much help. You know, Jerry, Jerry, there's also the, the Hall of Fame now has about 14 presenters for each <laughs> recipient. Yeah, it's hard to watch. It really is. Uh, <laughs> it's like, uh, what, what's the longest movie ever made? You go there, you go there and you say to yourself, when is this going to get over with? And, and, you know, obviously I'm very <laughs> zealous and, about the Hall of Fame, I think in some respects that I would like to see um, different kind of people get in the Hall of Fame, uh, where the criterion is much, very much like baseball. Some right. years, no one gets in baseball's Hall of Fame. Right. Uh, so, you send you my speech when I went in, Jerry, in case you missed it. You want to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Jerry, you know, you talked about you know, you, you learn from other people when you're growing up, you know, you see the better player, whatever. You didn't have television in those days to watch those kind of games. Yeah. But I'm, I've always wondered why, how you developed the low dribble, the low last dribble being a hard dribble and then elevating. How did you learn that? I don't know, Pete. One summer I was at West Virginia University and I was a freshman in my after my freshman season, uh, before my freshman season, they ha got me a job. I was a water boy. At, they were building a dam in Morgantown, West Virginia. <laughs> and I was a water boy, and I couldn't even drive, but uh, that was an adventure in itself. But um, I would go down in my spare time to the gym, and I just, there's something about, you know, dribbling a ball, and you don't have to expose the ball in front of a defender. It's up, in, up, up here quickly so you can shoot the ball. And uh, I actually had scratched my face to this day. I still have a scratch by trying to keep it so close to my body so you didn't expose the ball so much. And I felt it also, it, it, even transitioning to the NBA, it really helped a lot because there's a lot of hand checking going on uh, with both hands. You know, so you almost feel like you had a steering wheel on you. But it, <laughs> it helped me. It helped me but much better balance, much better balance on shooting the ball. And if you're drifting all over the place, unless you're an extraordinary shooter, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to convert them, particularly when you got people bumping you. And uh, <clears throat> that really helped me a lot. It learned, also yeah. Me. I mean, it was unstoppable shot, unstoppable shot. Mm -hmm. Gary, you mentioned your nose and, and there was a game in Kentucky where they broke your nose at least once, maybe twice. And then I looked it up. Um, that was that was against Adolph Rupp's team, and uh, do you know how many times your nose was broken in your career? I do, Pete. Unfortunately, nine times. Nine once, times. Once in college, and uh, at University of Kentucky, and that the first time uh, was a horrible, horrible break. Pete, I basically didn't have a nose. I really didn't. It would just smash flat, and I was getting ready to jump and go after a rebound. And this guy missed time to jump, and he came down, and his and his elbow hit me right on top of my nose. And I played the uh, I played the rest of the game. We we won uh, we won the we won the game. And uh, about 
and there's always some stories behind these things, Pete. Uh, and one of the really kind of amazing stories with this was that, uh, as I say, I've bled so much during the course of the game. It was crazy. About 10 years ago, 10 years, years ago, I get a package. And again, my God, that was in 1958, I believe, or 59. And I get a package in the mail, and it was a from a kid who was a ball boy that he had kept this towel that says Kentucky on it and has all this blood. He said, I thought you might want to – it was almost cryptic to get it. He, got, he, got, he could have gotten a lot of money for that. Oh, well, today everyone sells anything. I'm not right. saying something right. like that. So nine times, Jerry, I mean, what is it about your nose that people were uh, accidentally on purpose hitting with elbow? Well, he, you know, i tell you what was really weird. I had the same person who played for the New York Knicks do a t- run, <clears throat> actually trying to steal balls is what it was from, uh, <clears throat> two times in, in six weeks, my nose was broken by Willis Reed. <laughs> Well, it wasn't de- no, it wasn't deliberate. It wasn't deliberate. You know what's deliberate and what's not. Right. And uh, <clears throat> almost the same way. And uh, as I say, I was an aggressive defender, particularly when there was loose balls and people dribbling and, and I had long arms and quick hands and I can get a lot of steals and anticipate steals. And sometimes when you're going like that, <clears throat> you know, you're you're reaching and your nose exposed and people play in this league forever and never get a broken nose. Never. exactly. Uh, yeah. And it just, it was not fun, Pete, uh, in the sense that scar tissue bleeds a lot more, but I never missed a game from a broken nose. I never, never I never reached for, for a ball, loose ball, loose woman. Yes. But <laughs> not, not a loose ball. Right. Right. Well, um, sorry, Jerry. So, it was well. It was just you know. It was really really funny in the sense that you uh, you try like crazy to keep out of harm's way, so to speak. It doesn't work that way. It, and again, particularly if you if if, if you just don't stand around uh, and you're aggressive. Um, but it, it it was not fun. I mean, I had times when <clears throat> playing a game. I'll never forget. We played a game in San Diego, and we had white. I had white shoes on and. Uh, Pete, I mean, they were red after the game. I got, I brought my nose broken in the first half, and I'll never forget. Um, <clears throat> I'll never forget that. And coming over in timeouts, and I know it's horrible to talk about, but blood would just gushing out of your mouth, and you know they pack t- your nose, but you still bleed so much. And it didn't bother me, but the 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 guys of my teammates, they would, they just got completely away from me, and I was. That would never happen today because they wouldn't let you play because of right. all the protocols right. in place today with blood. And uh, but I just there's something about it. It used to make me mad. Jerry, Jerry, let's let's move on to a to a worse memory. <laughs> <laughs> I love those beat. Uh, <laughs> a worse memory. The, the Celtics. The Celtics. Now, I remember you know when I did a, an article with your son back when you were uh, you were getting the statue in L.A. outside Staples. Uh, he said to me that uh, you would not allow anything to wear the kids to wear anything green in the house, and that you you hated the Lakers, hated the Celtics forever. Do you do you still hate the Celtics? Oh gosh, no. That was I think probably people <laughs> I, I used to kid. Be honest, Jerry. Come on. But, 
No, I, I'm going to be. I'm going to be honest with Pete. I'm, I, I don't try to hide anything that's not yeah. true. Um, uh, but no, I. It was more of a, you know, making fun of it. But uh, I don't think anyone's ever seen me wear green. I'll say that. Uh, <laughs> but the green has changed so much in Boston. It changes all the time now. And and uh, as the NBA. Uh, mm, I think they're trying to change the uh, uh, colors of green and blue and everything. And so uh, everyone looks like a, a rainbow when they play today. But uh, no, as I say, I had great respect for the Celtics and particularly. They ruined, they, ruined your, they ruined your life for a long, long time. I mean, you went to the finals, what, six, Frank, six times? Six, time, six times six in times, the 60s. Yeah. Three, uh, of them, three of them went to game seven. Yeah. And. Um, it was, it, you know, I think in, as anyone, regardless of what, what you do, when you wrote, you took pride in what you were writing was hopefully the truth. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, when you're a player, <clears throat> excuse me, when you're a player, the thing that matters most at the end of the day, it's not about what you do. It's about, it's about winning. Uh, who do you play for? You play for the fans. You play for your, you know, your, your, your teammates. And you play for the uniform on your back. That's who you play for. But I really, honestly, I played for the fans because when we first started in Los Angeles, we had no, we had to build a fan base and they were vociferous. And, you know, every year when we came to Celtics, it was almost like the same story. You know, Lakers get to game seven, lose game seven. Uh, it was like torture. And for me, um, there's, Twice in the height of my career, I, I didn't. Pete, I wanted to quit. I really did. It was that painful. Uh, I remember one night after uh, a particularly horrible loss, I think 1969, when, regardless of what anyone says, we had the best team. We did not win. We had the best team, and um, it was like I got in my car. I just took off driving. I took off. I got home about. Mm, probably five o'clock in the morning after the game. Um, it was just so painful uh, to, no matter how you played, no matter how you played, no matter how the late Elgin Baylor played, it wasn't enough. And that was, that was time truly, I, I didn't know if I could take this anymore. Um, it was, it was your worst nightmare uh, to go in the arena and, and I was so embarrassed all they had all these balloons hung in the end zone and everyone said that's what motivated the Celtics. Well, I don't believe that for a second. The best team did not win. Period. Right. It did not win. Do you mind if we go over that game a little bit? Yeah, sure. This is a very, very controversial game. Uh, <clears throat> that was the game where uh, Butch Van Bredekoff did not reinsert Will Chamberlain. I believe Frank Get me with the numbers here. He, he went out with he went out with that five and change to go. I think he, he hurt an mm -hmm. ankle getting a rebound, uh, and with about uh, Mel Counts came in, then he uh, went down seven when he left. Yeah, and then with about two and change to go, we said I'm good to go. And uh, what was the quote of Butch? We're doing okay without you, or something along those lines. Right. I had no clue. I did not hear any of this. And you know, one of the things I said. When, when he went out, I didn't, I didn't know if it was major or anything at all. And I'm never one to question. If somebody's hurt, they're hurt, okay? And it got very controversial. I think it was well known that uh, Pete and uh, 
Uh, I mean, Butch and, and Wilt did not really care for each other. <clears throat> and uh, uh, it was, you don't try to think about that in the heart of the game. You're just trying to get back in the ball game. And uh, I did not hear that conversation at all. Uh, right. I was shocked when I heard it. <clears throat> but, um, and that was the last game Butch Van Bredekhoff ever coached at Lakers. Right, right. The, co the owner, Jack Ken Cook, fired him soon after. Um, yeah. Yeah, and you guys had such a chance to win that game. Uh, I think you had three chances at the end to to take the lead, and uh, there was either a turnover or a missed shot. And Mel Counts missed a shot at the end, too. Not not in the last seconds, but he missed a shot down the stretch. I think Russell blocked it. So I'm saying, like, Wilt, Wilt and Russell both had five fouls when Wilt went out. I mean, the game was there to be had, and uh, and, and Wilt sat. Well, I will say it's one of those <clears throat> stories that I wish I could talk about because I don't know. I mean, mm -hmm. they're sitting over there on the bench. I didn't hear any of the dialogue mm -hmm. at all. And after the game, you know, we didn't have the same volume of writers. We had a, quite a few then. Uh, but the media had just really started to get into professional basketball. And I'm talking about from – you know, all over the country, and uh, even people out of the country would start to have an interest in it. And uh, when when this was over with, I had a number of writers come to me and, you know, say, uh, what do you think about this? Well, how in the world can, first question, after you just lose, uh, I mean, uh, a gripping, ugly ending to a season, uh, how can you want to even comment on that um, right. when, you, when you haven't even heard it? And I've, I've had a lot of people say to me, oh, you, you knew what was going on. You knew what was going on. I, well, I knew they didn't like like each other, care for each other. I knew that. Right. But at the end of the day, it was like, um, you know, don't bother me. Don't bother anyone. We lost. And it was, it was just awful. It was awful. And, you know, I, I could see the, the gleam in uh, the Celtics' eyes. And Bill was the coach of the team at that point in time. So a player coach um, who was an incredible player and a great, great person, um, they won again. Um, it just was not fun. Was not let's, fun. let's jump to a more, to a better time for you. Uh, in your 14-year career, uh, you went to the finals nine times. And then in 1972, you won your championship. Could you tell us something about that 33-game winning streak, uh, starting with Elgin Baylor retiring X amount of games into the season, early in the season. My first question is, did Bill Sharman tell him that if he didn't retire that he was going to replace him in the starting lineup with Jim McMillan? Or, or did just Elgin know that he couldn't compete at that level anymore? You know, honestly <clears> – <throat> I don't know anything that what happened. Okay, I just I go to practice one day, and we're we were I think our record was five and three or uh, or yeah or five and four. What I don't know. Yeah, and we had just been playing not not very well. And Bill <clears throat> during the training camp, Bill had said to me, he said, "I want you to lead the league in assists." And I said, "Well, I said you know whatever." I said, "I said that's when we went and." Uh, and he says, well, we need, you know, we want to run more. And everyone looked at us and said, we're an older team that you couldn't run. Well, 
that's not really true. You have to run smart and you have to run effectively. Right. And uh, it's not just running up and down the court and firing shots up around. It has to be organized. And so I go to practice that day and no Elgin and said, somebody said, Elgin's retiring. And that's the first thing I knew about. And the first thing I said, well, I want to find out what's going on here. <clears throat> Tried to get in touch with Elgin and I wasn't able to, um, but I did get in touch with him the next day. And he said that, that he had retired. Um, and the only thing I'd heard that they had called the owner, late owner was Jack Cook. <clears throat> they called him in the office and they'd asked him to retire. And uh, uh, because he was struggling, Pete, with, you know, he had two horrible injuries, leg injuries. <clears throat> and the way he played, um, he needed to be at full strength the way he played because he was a magnificent player, uh, a great teammate, and a better person. But it was probably the shock of my life to go in the locker room and not see him after being there with him for 12 years, to not see him in the locker room. It was like I lost my best friend. I lost someone I cared about personally. And But, you know, you're obligated to play the game. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't sit down and dwell once you go play. So you and, started that winning streak. You started yeah, against uh, Baltimore, yeah. I believe. And, and – um so 33 in a row, and I, I'm wondering all these years again, how, you know, Charmin, Charmin never gets enough credit in my mind for anything that he's ever done. I, I, I love the guy. Um, how, how, yeah, I remember you and I sitting down with him in L.A. Uh, back in the day. We had a great couple of days with him. But how did he motivate you guys to, you know, to stay mentally into it, practices? Did he, tell me something he did differently. Well, one thing I heard is that he would put Wilt on the second team. <laughs> well, in practices, he would mix up things in practices. He really would. And so I think the thing that I thought was very interesting is that Wilt's team never won a game in practice. Okay. <laughs> oh, boy. It wasn't, it wasn't because – it wasn't because um, he didn't he, – he probably didn't even care, Okay. Practice then for him, he, you know, everyone talks about minutes played. Pete, he's the only guy that ever played more minutes in a season that was ever scheduled. He played mm -hmm. every minute of every game, and that right. included overtime. Right. So right. you didn't even need a backup center, but he never got hurt. Right. But, uh, no, he did – Bill did stuff like that. He would uh, – we had a plus-minus system. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. Uh, and, you know, at that point in time, I was making a lot more than when, when I was a – when I was a rookie and uh, only because of, you know, being an all pro player, uh, all defensive player and stuff like that. That's how you get paid. Okay. For your performance. And Will, of course, had all this, these accolades and um, Bill asked him to be a rebounder and a defender. So he didn't want either one of shooting the ball. <laughs> he was smart. <laughs> right. And, uh, but, uh, uh, let, let, was, Goodridge, let Goodridge shoot and uh, and Jim McMillan. Yeah, right. And we put Jimmy McMillan in the lineup, and, and Jimmy was another fantastic person. Mm -hmm. But it seemed like all of a sudden we moved the ball better. Uh, we became better defensively. Um, uh, we ran more. But we had the best rebounding in the team by by a lot. And, and we could win any kind of a game, Pete. And that game, at that time, some of these games were really physical. I mean, very physical. You didn't want to go shoot a layup. I'll tell you that. 
And then we could win a wide open game. I think we averaged uh, our point spread differential, I believe, was almost 14 a game. And Pete, there's a lot of games we didn't even play the last quarter. So it could have been gigantic during that period of time. We had games where I remember one game when uh, we got hung up in Chicago and Wilt got uh, the police took him off the plane because we'd been on this one airplane going to Philadelphia. We played that night in Chicago, go to the airport. We got out there at uh, our plane was supposed to leave at seven thirty. Now remember it's an hour's time difference in Philadelphia. And uh, we, uh, we get out there and we're sitting on the plane and, they mechanical it'll be a you know 45 minutes or something like that and then we uh this just kept going on and on and on all of a sudden it's about 1 o'clock and we had go- could have gone on three other planes and got there a reasonable time we stayed and so they wilt said something to someone come on the plane he said if i had guns a gun i'd shoot someone they took him off the airplane like, oh my god yeah oh my god. All of us were kind of laughing, but we're so tired. We finally get to to Philadelphia. Remember, an hour's time difference. We finally get to Philadelphia at 5-something. The game is 7 or 7.30. We didn't even go to the hotel. No one had anything to eat except possible because they wouldn't let you off the airplane. They just kept you on the airplane the whole time. And we get out there. We were right to the arena. And everyone was laughing because Wilt wasn't there. He's not going to be here tonight, right? <laughs> well, about five, I think about five minutes to seven, he walks in. He starts bitching about, you guys just left me in, in, in <laughs> Chicago. And, and everyone said, well, we didn't leave you in Chicago. Uh, you know, the, the police kept you there. Right. So he... Uh, Did they give him back uh, his gun? He dressed in a typical fashion, which was amazing to watch how he dressed um he just, <laughs> it was amazing but he was so mad i can't tell you how mad he was he just kept saying how mad he was all us we left it we left it there the first quarter we we were in this i think we won about 19 straight game we're behind the first quarter by about 18 points philadelphia had a pretty good team and but we had this system $5 for every rebound, $5 for every block shot, $5 for every steal, and $5 for every assist. And in this game, he we end up winning this game by about 30 and hardly played any the last quarter. It was like an avalanche going down a mountain. Who paid and, for that? Charmin paid that? Yeah. he Well, he at the time, the, t- the team would pay it. You can't do that because of an inducement. Right. But the most important thing wasn't your paycheck. How much money did we did you make from all these steals, rebounds, assists, and 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 stuff like that? But there were also turnovers were five dollar fine. Uh, but in that one game, he had sixteen block shots and uh, thirty five rebounds. And I had my biggest payday. I had I had I had like eighteen assists. And about nine steals in that game, and but a guy would go by the bench, if, if, and if 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 you deflected a ball, and somebody else picked it up, they'd go. Guys would run down the court like this, a half, so right? two and a half dollars. Uh, but it served its purpose, and uh, I led the league in assists. Chamberlain led the league in rebounding, um, and we won. We won the championship. It was like a dream come true. 
dream come true. Yeah, Sharman. Sharman knew what he was doing, wasn't he? Had to motivate and and. Uh, well, you know, he was simple, Pete. He wasn't yeah. one of these really complex coaches. The thing he wanted, he wanted people to compete. Uh, yeah. And some people compete at a higher level, but he just had a way with people. And and I used to tell him all the time, uh, and he because he would. <clears throat> He asked me before the season started, he says, you know, do you want to, uh, I have a question. I want Will to be the captain. I said, I, I said, I've never been the captain since I've been on the Laker team anyway. <laughs> and I, 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 I played, of course, with Elgin. He was the captain of the team. And he was, he was almost like this, saying that that would offend me. I said, why would that offend me? I don't care if I'm captain. That made no difference. Right. Uh, but, but it's, I guess it's like being an honor guard. <laughs> right, 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 right. I, th I think if I could interrupt, I think the burning question, Jerry, is with all the uh, uh, $5 here and $5 there, are you sure you were getting an honest count? Oh, my God. After the game, Wilt would go over the guy. And he, it, Wilt, Wilt kept track of everything. How many rebounds and blocks up? He made him go back. He made him go back and look right. at films. <laughs> you didn't give me enough rebounds. <laughs> Jerry, Jerry, I heard that when he led the league in assists, I think Frank McGuire was the coach then, but he led the league in assists, and that he would stand, stand, uh, you know, with his back to the basket, and they they give him the ball, and then they cut off of him, and as they cut off of him, he would say their shooting percentages. So if you had a lousy shooting percentage, you pull the ball back. <laughs> Yeah, he was a Pete. He was a real character. He real. Well, I love real. Yeah, well, he was a real character, and you know, later a lot of people, you know, they look around and they try to find reasons to, uh, I guess, for some people to really get on him for nothing. He was just complex, okay. And, you know, I would be on elevators with him, and and he people, oh man, how's the weather up there, and. and I've heard of stories, not him, but another player spit on someone's head and it's raining, they said. <laughs> uh, but we had, uh, I had a lot of fun with him after games a lot of night. We would uh, be in a room, have dinner in a room. Uh, and what was really interesting, one night we were doing this in Detroit. And uh, so it was my time to, to pay. And uh, <clears throat> so they, he ordered three entrees. Okay. <laughs> And uh, but he was he was a character. He really was. I had a lot of dessert. That's what I want to know. <laughs> I had a lot of fun with him. A lot of fun. Jerry, um, you retired at what age? Thirty four. Uh, just getting ready to turn thirty five. Yeah, but, right. Getting ready. So <clears throat> we looked it up, and uh, you had an exhibition game where you scored thirty eight points, and the next day you retired. Jerry, what? What was that about? Well, it's really weird, Pete. Um, the year before I had gotten in a, you know, you didn't have uh, agents or anything. And <clears throat> I wanted to renegotiate my contract. Um, and he, uh, the owner said basically no. And, um, and I said to him, I said, look, I said, I've done everything you ask of me. I said, I play when I'm hurt. I said, I play when doctors give me shots. Um, I said, there's nothing I don't play with. I said, you asked me to uh, lead the league, uh, lead this team in scoring and assist, and you also want me to guard the best offensive player. And I said, I think that I think that I should make more money. And it's the only really time that 
I had where I felt I had any leverage. And uh, <clears throat> he basically said no. And so uh, I'll never forget that day. That was Jack uh, Kent Cook. Just Jack so Kent Cook. I'll never forget that day. Larry Fleischer was trying to help me. And so <clears throat> they asked me, uh, Larry asked me, would I be willing to go to Phoenix and play? I said, you know, I'd rather finish my career with the Lakers, but let me think about it. So I came to find out that they were <clears throat> maybe possibly thinking about trading Charlie Scott for me. And um, so I said, no, I'm going to go back, back and play. And the 28th game that season, we're playing a game in Houston. They had an old tartan court, court down there. And I tore a groin muscle. <clears throat> and I could not feed. I couldn't even really – I couldn't sleep for three months. I had to sleep with two pillows between my legs. I never had anything like that before. And it was, a, it was an injury, I think, that like uh, offensive linemen, defensive linemen, when you get hit and you're torqued and your body stops abruptly. And this, the, it was explained to me that, doctor, it's, it's a football injury. <clears throat> so they sent me all over the country to try to find some solution to it. But there wasn't a lot of blood. It's a really small little area there. And so I missed basically the rest of the season until the playoffs. <clears throat> never had, I never practiced once in that period of time. I was doing some light jogging, and I would do some shooting where, you know, just straightforward shooting. No running, hard running at all. So <clears throat> they basically said to me, we really want you to play. I said, well, the only way I'm going to be able to play is to, you know, to be shot up. And before the game, they gave me like six shots in my groin area, six, which helped the pain. And so we started playing the game and, um, and against the Milwaukee Bucks. And uh, I made a last-second shot to win the game. But I was absolutely couldn't do anything. But I did make a shot to win the game. And uh, uh, so oh, everyone was happy. You know, I'm back playing. We've had a day off, and the day off, I, I could hardly walk. It hurt so bad. And so uh, they were going to practice the next day. I could not practice. I couldn't. I, I would shoot a little bit. I could, that hurt. And so <clears throat> um, then the next game comes, they do the same thing. I, I could not play. It just – it was it just no one will experience that kind of pain. I couldn't play. And so after the season over, I heard from a lot of a lot of people that he said that I didn't want to play because I wouldn't he wouldn't pay me. And um, and that really was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. But I did work out really hard that summer, Pete, and I ran a lot of hills. A late coach at UCLA by the name of Jim Bush. He was a famous track coach over there. He had me to start running hills, down the hill, and particularly back up the hill. And so I would do that a lot. I lost a lot of weight and at that point in time. And I felt really good. I did feel really good. But you just I knew that this was not going to work. I knew I was going to get hurt. And Will Chamberlain was no longer there. Elgin Baylor was no longer there. And it was going to be me and a bunch of young guys. Um, so we played that Exeget Bishing game against Portland and Bill Russell, I mean, and Bill uh, Walton. And uh, after the game, Pete, I, I said, I told this 
uh, the GM, who was name was Fred Chouse. He was my college coach and also my professional coach when I first started. Mm -hmm. I told him, and I'm Bill Sharman, a coach. I said, I, I need to talk to you guys. And it was really strange because I used to sit in a locker room. I can take my hand. Water would just drip off of it, just drip off of it. Uh, so much adrenaline going through your body. And before the game, no water was dripping off my hand. It was only an exhibition game, but even exhibition games, I was like that. And after the, after the game, I said, I can't do this anymore. I mean, it was like somebody said, somebody said, don't do this. And I believe a lot of players play past their time. And I wasn't going to do it. Mm -hmm. I had too much pride in how I played and how, um, how much I cared about winning and how much I cared about how I played. Because people I knew would pay to come see me play. I knew that. Right. I didn't want to think it, but I knew it. And, Pete, I would have been the first million-dollar player in professional basketball. First million-dollar player. In that year? Yep. And I said no. Hmm. I said no. So, so that, that leads to my next question, Jerry, is that so you, you did not have a good relationship with Jack Kent Cook at the end, that's for sure. Why then did you accept to be the coach for Jack Kent Cook? Well, Pete, I took basically three years off, and Bill's teams were not having very much success. And they were going to – they wanted to hire the late Jerry Tarkanian. And uh, they met with him twice, I know. And then his, the guy who represented him, they found him dead in the backseat of a car here yeah. in Los Angeles. I mean, yes. a horrible, horrible story. Well, he was skimming money from the <laughs> – that's what happens. <laughs> well, I didn't know that. But anyway, Jerry went back and, and uh, coached at UNLV and uh, uh, didn't leave. And, uh, and so he, they called me about it. And I was really bored. All I was doing was playing golf, and, and uh, um, I was just too young to just sit and relax. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, uh, you know, find something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Um, I've never worked a day in my life. Uh, I've been blessed in a sense that there's something about the bouncing ball, the noise in a gym, being around other athletes that was appealing to me. And the first year that I was involved, I asked him because I didn't know anything about coaching. The only thing I knew was forget offense. I didn't. Offense was easy. Um, I wouldn't know how to run a scheme, a system, or anything. Uh, but defensively, I had an idea what we needed to do if we're going to be a, an effective team. So basically the same thing that Bill had, um, I took them and I, I told uh, Abdul-Jabbar, I said, you're going to be the complete focus of this team, complete focus. And we're going to run an offense designed for you, but we're going to make it easier for you defensively. Uh, I just believe you isolate people on one side of the court. Don't let them use the other side of the court. And it was easier to help that way. You, you didn't, you know, guys won't get backdoored out of plays like that. <clears throat> and my first year, we won more games and any team in the league and all it was done and I'm not I'm not saying it was me but my two assistant coaches the late Sam Allback who I loved and the late Jack McCloskey who I loved they were just great guys and they know they they knew they were 
nursing uh, an emotional child. That's what they were doing. That's you? Yes. And th even then, and still today, I guess. <laughs> but uh, I am emotional, and I care about I like, winning. I like nursing, though. I, like <laughs> well, <laughs> I care about winning a lot. And um, even today, and my involvement with Clipper, I, I really care about winning. And I care about how athletes are doing. I like them put in the best possible situation. And particularly if they're good guys, they got to be good guys and they got to be have passion to play the game. But uh, it's probably one of the happiest times I've ever had in my life to know that I had two guys who understood this very emotional person who was not qualified to be a coach because of his emotions. Mm -hmm. And during my three years here uh, uh, in Los Angeles as a coach, we had I think we went almost at a 60% pace, basically with the same team as Bill had, only because we changed from an off. Bill wanted an up, upscale game, and his team simply wasn't uh, qualified to do that. And then Bill had also lost his voice, which made it even more difficult to communicate. But after my second year. <clears throat> Jerry, let's stick, to that first, let's stick to the first year. That was 76, 77. Uh, was it? Yeah, I think you so. lost. You lost to the Blazers that year. Yes, who won the championship? Okay, but you owned them during this regular season, yes, correct? Yes. And then well, what and happened? Lucius we Allen lose. got hurt. We lose Kermit Washington, who was our answer, and more than an answer for Maurice Lucas. Maurice Lucas would bully all our other players. He wasn't going to do that with Kermit, right? And he got hurt, and then also Lucius Allen got hurt, and we played all these kind of heartbreaking, close games. Um, and it just took its toll on me, to be honest with you. I just was – I couldn't accept – I couldn't accept some of the things I was seeing. But, Pete, like a year later, as you're well aware, you know, the league was really having some a lot of problems with the players. Uh, it was a, uh, an era, a drug era. Uh, let's face it, it was. And the league was aware of it. And uh, – it just, at times we would go on the road and I would see the characters come to the hotel and hang around. And I, I just, I couldn't take it. Okay. I could not take that. Right. I've never been a real dissipator. I, you know, I don't smoke. I'm never marijuana, no drug, uh, not even much of a drinker, to be honest with you. And for some reason, uh, I was going through a divorce. Um, the way I treated some of our players even to this day, I'm embarrassed. I mean, really embarrassed. And I've told, I've told the ones that, um, that were around, I've apologized to every one of them that I was not fit to be a coach. And, and I said, I'm ashamed of, of how, how, what my behavior was like. Really? Um, and honestly, it was a relief to do that for me. Mm -hmm. That's not who I am as a person. I try to treat everyone nice, but it was just, all the stuff I was going through personally, right. but also knowing I was not helping these players grow. I was not. Uh, our drafts were, were horrible at that point in time. We weren't getting any help for Kareem. And I, I said to him one day, I said, you know, Kareem, I said, I've watched you play. If you would play harder, can you imagine me that – telling Abdul Jabbar that he should play harder. I said to myself after I, after, after I, my third year, when I was not going to do this anymore, 
And Jerry Buss, who had bought the team, wanted me to coach more, and I could not do it. There's no way. It wouldn't have been fair to the players. Right. And Abdul-Jabbar made the game look so darn easy, Pete, that you did not realize what he was doing. You did not. And he played emotionless, but his he was he – was, you know, people talk about great players. Right. My goodness. Today, uh, he would – some of these centers are playing today. You know, everyone wants to play from basket. Right. I would love to see somebody try to guard him. There's no way. Jerry, let me back up. Let me back up a second, though. Just to, I think I'm correcting you, but Kermit Washington that year, wasn't that the year that he got into the fight with uh, Rudy Tom John? Well, he didn't get hurt. You guys, I mean, you, your, your owner basically distanced himself from Kermit and then cut him or traded him, got rid of him. He, I don't think he into the Boston Celtics. Yeah, never practiced with you again. So, again, you were without Kermit. And Lucius Allen and, you know, the Blazers. Well, they were good. They were, they were good. good. But they kind of lucked into that because I think you were undefeated against them during the regular well, season. Well, again, Pete, I don't say anyone lucks into something, but circumstances certainly uh, certainly help. I'll say it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. But uh, I think probably the crowning blow was when Kermit got into the fight with Rudy and um, – what people said about him uh, was just awful. And I wanted an aggressive team, and we had an aggressive team. But never thinking the person who really started that wasn't Kermit, was not. Kevin, Kevin Cooner. Absolutely, you're absolutely correct. Right. No one ever said anything about, about that. Right. But that was the final straw for me as a coach. I just, I, he was, I mean, it's everyone was so critical of him and calling him a thug. Uh, I, I, he was a nice person, a really nice person. And Gary, I know that for a fact because uh, his PR guy, Mark Splaver, when he was in college, used to tell me about Kermit. And in my career, I'm only, I'm only uh, really disappointed with myself for two columns I ever wrote. And one was after that fight where you know Rudy came running at him and he didn't know and he just he threw the punch and I, I was totally out of line with that column I wrote kind of what you're saying you know I was one of those guys and the other one was on a Marvin Webster uh, column that uh, I went after his wife in the column <laughs> not not a good idea well, you really know you really know how to be a peacemaker don't you yeah he's, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a Nobel Prize waiting to happen didn't he <laughs> Jerry, if I can interject for for a quick second, what uh, three years as coaching? How did you see the game differently on the sidelines than when you saw it when you ran the offense? You know, you can't teach instincts. Okay, sometimes you have to put guys on X's. On X's, that doesn't work. You have to be adaptable. And you also have to have players that complement each other. Uh, we didn't have enough players to complement Abdul-Jabbar, period. We did not. Um, and today, I think Kareem, because I've talked to him about it a lot, and we still are very friendly. Uh, we speak some, not every day, but we speak a few times during the course of a year. And I see a different man, and I think he sees that I'm a different person. Uh, he's really bright. Um, uh, when you have someone like this who's an intellectual in the locker room, 
I used to watch him. He'd be reading these books that other players not going to. They might be reading comic books when they're that that age. He would read things that were so important, and we got into talking about reading books. And frankly, he expanded my reading habits a lot, hmm. uh, which I'm thankful for to this day. Um, but he's he was one of those amazing players that if you watched him play, it was effortless, absolutely effortless, and it made me feel good that that uh, my relationship with him, he probably was disgusted with me. Um, my relationship with him changed for positive because I was very honest with him and, and also the other players I was very honest with. Well, maybe you could talk to him uh, about doing this podcast. He turned me down. But but moving well, you better You better call Deborah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I, I better not. <laughs> but I, I've known Kareem since he was at St. Jude's in the eighth grade. He came to my high school to try out for a scholarship. And uh, the coach, the coach turned him down because Kareem wanted to be driven to school every day. <laughs> so he went to Powell Memorial instead of Archbishop. Yeah, I met him when I was a player and when he was in high school. And we talked about it. we talked when I was when he was in high school. Really? <clears throat> so Frank, that wraps up part one of Hoop Du Jour. I mean, could it be any better listening to Jerry West? It could not, because as we talked about, and as Jerry has has certainly reinforced if there is a living history of the NBA, it's him. And if you enjoyed part one, you'll love part two. Amen, Frank. Thank you for listening to Hoop Du Jour with moi, Peter Vesey, and column castigator Frank Drucker. You can listen to all Hoop Du Jour interviews by searching Legends Studios wherever you get your podcasts.